0: Okay, welcome to episode three of the Hard Colour Show. Right next to me is Big Simi Leota. G'day. And Danny Cassetti. Morning. Um, we thought we'd have a very. Uh, our first two guests we had on the so far were pretty heavy and darker, sort of stories. Very uplifting towards the end, but um, we went with a different tone this time. Um, so to introduce our guests, we were up at a Into the Wild Retreat with, I think we had four young guys, um, very vulnerable. They all had big Rambo Bowie knives with them because they were all terrified to be out in the bush. And um, if anything moved in the night, they would grab us and say, did you hear that? Are you okay? <laughs> uh, one of, one of, it was an amazing experience, but the funniest thing was um, it's the people you meet at this particular spot and a lovely lady came over to me and asked me if I had a certain cable to charge her f- her phone and I had a look through my car and then went through the camp and asked uh, everybody and no one had that particular cable but um, that lovely woman, Carolyn, asked what we were doing and uh, we explained to her that we had taken four young men away on an into the wild retreat that had struggled with. Um, various challenges, abuse, and other bits and pieces, and um, Carolyn was really touched, and um, I felt a real connection with Carolyn, and um, she said, I think you need to meet my husband. He's got one hell of a story. And um, we just caught some abalone off the rocks. I think that stage of me and Simi and Daddy were shucking and getting ready, and um, then... George Hatsum came over and introduced himself to us. So that's our guest today, Dr. George Hatsum. Welcome to the show, mate.
1: G'day. Nice to to be on. And thanks for giving me uh, a call so I can tell my story.
0: Beautiful, mate. So let's get right into it. Um, What are your first memories, George, as a kid? And how did it all start?
1: Uh, The first thing I remember is probably when I was six. I don't have any memories of... uh, uh, anything before that, um, and that's probably because when I was six, my father died in uh, the war in the Lebanon. Uh, we used to live in a refugee camp, a Palestinian refugee camp uh, in Lebanon. The refugee camp is in the backyard of a local church in Beirut, and uh, the family had been living in it since 1948. So unfortunately, my father was murdered when I was six, and my first memory was with me in his funeral um, procession, um, and it was quite traumatic, and I don't remember anything before that, and I, you know, I, I attribute that to the shock and trauma of losing my father at the age of six, that I have zero recollection of anything before that.
0: What sort of man was he, George, from, from reports of the people that knew him? Well
1: um by all accounts he was a very kind-hearted man he was the type of man that uh, would be happy to take half his plate uh, of food with what little he had and share it with whoever needed it. So he was um, uh, you know a very generous uh, kind-hearted man and uh, you know I've, I've lived my life with his memory in the background of my head and trying to be uh, you know living up to his reputation and in his shadows
2: beautiful beautiful
0: george It's beautiful mate so well i knew this was going to be powerful today i've already got a tear in my eye mate um so yeah let's so what happened after that how many brothers and sisters george did you have um i am one of six i am
1: the youngest of a family of six and obviously in the middle east there's no such thing as uh, Centrelink or or unemployment benefits or you know pensioner uh, payment or anything like that. So my poor old mum, uh, you know, living in a refugee camp with six little kids, eight, ranging from age from myself, which was six to my older sister, who was like 14 at the time. Uh, you know, she obviously couldn't support us. Uh, thankfully this, uh, I was taken in by, uh, a German uh, charity group uh, as a boarder in a um, boarding house that's run for uh, people who've lost their parents in the war and uh, i was in that boarding school until the uh, day i came to australia which was 1985. soon after i went to the boarding school for the orphans so did my brother and my two youngest sisters we were all sent off to different um, places and boarding schools because uh, unfortunately at the time my mum had no skills, she she got married at a very young age, and all she knew was to raise kids, and my father was the sole breadwinner, so she was now in a position to support us. My two older sisters had to leave school in year seven and year nine, or the equivalent of year seven and year nine, start working in what you'd call out a checkout chick type position, um, you know, because obviously they were young and so on, but they started working to just to be able to support themselves and my mum so that's uh the first few years of my life
0: so am i right in saying george were you all uh we split up or did you manage to stay together there
1: now we were split up i was uh, sent to the boarding school the first year by myself then my brother was sent to a boarding <laughs> school to the same boarding school but a different sort of family group so we would never see each other because the boarding school had like different kids in different what's called family groups so um, i might just see him once every two weeks or once every three weeks in a like an assembly or something like that but we were raised uh, separately and separate but he only stayed in that boarding school for two years and then ran away because it wasn't the most pleasant place in the world as you can imagine in the mountains of lebanon uh with a bunch of orphans uh all together all traumatized kids he was a little bit older he was four years older than me so he He essentially ran away from the boarding school after being there for two years and never came back. And, um, you know, he went back home, obviously, and uh, started working in the construction industry from the age of 13, again, to support himself and and, uh, mum and my sisters when when he left the boarding school.
0: Incredible. Um, How hard was it for you, George, as a young boy for all this um, going on? And how did you manage it? How did you manage your well-being?
1: With the grace of God, I, um, I survived it because I had a loving um, family and a couple of loving people at the boarding school. The German missionaries, they had a good heart. There was a lot of locals working in the uh, in their boarding school. And in the Civil War of Lebanon, things got a bit tough if you're Christian amongst Muslim or if you're Muslim amongst Christians or if you're Palestinian and Lebanese and so on. It was all like an almighty mess so where i lived i was the only christian kid uh, in a muslim suburb of my age group that is so we grew up because i was palestinian and most palestinians are from muslim background i am from christian background but most palestinians are from muslim background the refugee camp was in the muslim part of beirut so the majority of palestinians uh, in the refugee camp were muslims even though it was in the church ground, but that's how things happened. So I was the only Christian kid of my age. When I'm on holidays away from the boarding school, which happened twice a year, uh, and all the other kids were Muslims. So I wasn't a very popular kid, as you can imagine, in the civil war between Christians and Muslims of Lebanon. And when I was in the boarding school, I was the only Palestinian kid amongst Lebanese in the mountain boarding school. So again, I wasn't very popular. So I was, let's say, bullied and pushed around both when I'm in the boarding school and when I had the opportunity to visit my mum, which is usually twice a year. Uh, tough upbringing, but I was fortunate enough that I got a um, very fortunate break in life. Uh, at the age of 15, I got an opportunity with half of, of my immediate family to come to australia and that's a whole story uh, in itself and and things started turning around uh, when i got to australia
0: incredible george and yeah, boys have you got any questions because i can just keep going
2: um like um in shock yeah yeah I'm just just it's amazing
0: yeah so what was it like george when you get off the plane and you're in australia
1: my, I, was, uh, I, I described at the time that better than, better than winning the lotto because you know you can win the lotto and the money will you know be used for whatever reason you want to use it for even if you use it wisely it'll run away it'll run out sooner <laughs> or later but, but coming to Australia you get one blessing after another after another it was definitely better than winning the lotto and of course it, it, being a, a refugee in the Lebanon uh, you know you would never be able to get ahead in life. You cannot hold license, not even a, a, to be a, dri- a taxi taxi driver. You can't, as a refugee, you can't uh, hold a license or anything like that. Um, you wouldn't be able to get to university. You can't buy real estate. You, you're never allowed to hold real estate in your name. So as a refugee, you're discriminated against. Um, tough life, you know, at the best of times, coming to Australia from day one, Sure, we had nothing but the clothes that we had on, but you are treated with respect and dignity, and, and everybody is essentially trying to look out for you. We had brilliant people helping us out, giving us free furniture, giving us free clothes, uh, supporting us where we can. And I have to say the, the expatriate Palestinian community was, was you know really fantastic. People that understood our background Pulled together everything we needed so within a week we had a fully furnished house lots of clothes probably too many clothes <laughs> more clothes than i've ever had uh because of the generosity of the aussie spirit and the palestinian community uh in uh, in sydney
0: that's magnificent george
2: of, of, of and course. then of
1: course i was lucky enough uh, the the school which was a catholic school in Ride, agreed to take me on without paying a cent um which is quite generous and, and very lucky for me because i set some exams and even though my english was atrocious at the time they could see that my mathematics and my physics i could i could read numbers and i could solve mathematical equations i recognized that i had some talent i suppose um and they were very generous to uh take me on halfway through year 10 at the time and i started going to a um you know catholic school holy cross college in a ride and again another um, you know, winning lotto a lot moment because without that, uh, I don't think I would have progressed very well. I was very, very fortunate that the brothers that ran that school uh, were willing to give me a break.
2: I was, I was going to ask, um, when you first got to Australia, um, how would you find the food compared to where you are from? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always about the food.
1: <laughs> uh, mate, everything that when I came to Australia was... Different, uh, you know, more uh, proportions in every other way. Uh, I saw things I'd never seen before. Uh, as an an example, other than just the variety of food, the variety of sport that I was, ex, you know, exposed to was astronomical. So, for example, each term uh, at Holy Cross College Ride, we had to choose a sport, and it's usually three months. You can do a sport. Most kids did the same sport all year round. And they gave me a list of 20 sports I could choose from. I think, well, I've never <laughs> heard of these things, man. I don't know what a squash is. I've never seen it a tennis racket. You know, I've only ever played, you know, with a deflated ball, kicking it around the, you know, the refugee camp or the school, playing a little bit of soccer or football, as we used to call it. <laughs> so I asked for special permission to, to try. I said, I, I can't choose. Can I try this, one? So for Essentially, the next two terms, I played a different sport every week. And it was a brilliant experience. Again, the generosity of the school to allow me to do that. And bend the rules to allow a poor refugee to try. So I tried squash, tennis, uh, athletics, swimming. I almost drowned, by the way, but I survived the swimming pool. And, uh, you know, I basically tried every sport the school, including rock climbing and everything else that they had. It was just an amazing experience. And I'm very thankful for them. And I still am very thankful for them for giving me the opportunity to go to that school and try out all those different sports. And 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 you know, ever since then, I've I've been very much a, a sporty type of person. And I've recently just uh, done the Ironman uh, for the first time in May at Port Macquarie. And I, I, I you know put that because they were generous to me, and they instilled that love of sport and the Aussie spirit of loving sport. And I've been loving sport ever since I came.
0: It's just resonant. It, it really comes through in your voice and your tone, George. Your um, your spirit and and the appreciation. And it makes me proud and emotional that the country um, put our arms around you. A um, couple of questions already. Was it a situation? Just to go back quickly to the refugee camp. We'll move on from that. Was was it, were you literally in tents? <laughs>
1: uh- the original refugee camp was in tents, and then for uh, about 20 years after that, they allowed, because it was pretty much a permanent refugee camp, they allowed people to put in one-meter-high wall, which was built from sort of rocky stones or whatever. And then on top of that was tent material. So it was pretty. it's a permanent uh, uh, sort of refugee camp. Now, if you go there, they're like two stories, and, and you know people living on top of it. The next generation just stayed, and there's no room to expand it because it's surrounded. It's, it's essentially the church background, backyard, excuse me. And, and of course, it's got limited space. So you got these refugees have been living there since 1948. So my father and mother met in the refugee camp. They, they arrived when they were little. They got married, stayed in the refugee camp, and then we stayed with them. So two people had a small one room, and then they had six kids, and all eight of us were in this one-room refugee camp, you know, uh, half-built-up house, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm getting a hell, of, a hell of a lot more of a picture of it. Um, physics and maths, George. How did you? What? Why were you naturally good at them? What? How did you do this? Was this something you were born with, or?
1: Um, well, look, I, I, I do attribute that. To me being fortunate enough, um, I had a very intelligent father. He was never educated, and mum was never educated, but they were both smart people. Uh, the, the boarding school is where I learned my mathematics and physics. Uh, and, you know, the German missionaries that ran the place uh, instilled in us love of uh, education and love of learning. You know, the, the of course, the curriculum was quite different, but they could... Uh, see that uh, you know uh, you know if a kid's got some talent they'll give them extra homework and so on. So I've had the opportunity to um, to learn a lot. So when I came to Australia and and the school just wanted to see which class to put me on and which subjects to, it, and they asked me what I'd done and I, the only thing I could really in very very basic English was do physics and mathematics. They couldn't test me on geography or history or, or uh, literature or whatever because I could hardly read and write English. It was very, very basic elementary, uh, you know, second language. Actually, it was my third language because Arabic was my first language and the German was the second language that we learned at school because everybody in the Middle East learns a second language. And um, you know, when we started high school, we had to do mathematics and physics in uh, English yeah. so I knew some basics uh, there and uh, I have to say I'm very fortunate to um, have had a reasonably good education much much better education than most people in Lebanon during the Civil War and I attributed that to them to my fortune or misfortune of being in a boarding school so our my education wasn't interrupted too much.
2: Okay. Very good. Could I ask um, what was your sort of driving force behind you, like keep pushing forward? Did, did you have some sort of, I don't know, picture in your head where you wanted to do it for your for your, for your parents or, or just for yourself? Or, you get Sorry, I could
1: hardly hear that. So I was, uh, just, I was just
2: asking, what was your driving force behind you um, sort of um, moving, forward. moving forward and keep pushing? and.
1: Yeah. Well, I I suppose, uh, to be quite honest, I don't really know. But at the time, you grow up deprived, never had more than $5 in my pocket. Any opportunity, you grab it with both hands and hold on to it for dear life. And, and, you know, in the Middle East, if you didn't have an education, you'd be a laborer, essentially, as a Palestinian. The only way out of the refugee camp is if you became an engineer or a teacher or whatever. And while your opportunities are not great it still got you out of the refugee camp because you might have you know got a, a job in a private uh you know institution you can't get government jobs uh, because you were refugees and we didn't have passports or travel documents but you could you know get ahead in in their private institutions so education was paramount uh you know for us refugees and that was instilled in me that the only way to get ahead is uh, you know through education so i you know, studied hard. I came to Australia, and like I said, I did the last couple of terms in, in of year 10, and other than maths, I failed every other subject, primarily because I could hardly read the paper, and, and I couldn't finish the, the 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 number of questions that they'd had on them. So, I, you know, my English was improving rapidly, but not to such an extent that I could pass um, my geography or history in year 10. So, despite the fact that Sewell was wonderful they wouldn't let me do for example extension mathematics three unit or four unit math they insisted i stay in two unit math and and they wanted me to do basic science and i wanted to do extension science so i'd had to do a lot of study privately in year 11 and 12 outside the classroom and push them to allow me and eventually i changed from two units to three unit math and from three unit math to four unit maths and from general science to physics and chemistry and by the end of you know year 12 I was able to sit the exam like every other student and of course another story which might be interested is is um in the end of year 12 they were trying to decide who is the ducks of the school well, and well. of course um nobody even looked at my marks at the time because I was you know so far behind and it only came good right at the very end and when I uh, you know, went to the uh, principal and, and asked him to review my marks because I, I told him I think I beat your you know, the ducks uh, by, <laughs> by a mark or two. He looked at me strangely and, and uh, wouldn't wouldn't wouldn't, you know, really calculate my marks. They knew I'd done well in maths and in physics and, and chemistry, but they didn't consider the totality of who's this new kid on the block that has beaten the kid who's been the ducks of the school for so long. But interestingly enough the school said, oh, look, yes, yes, we acknowledge, but um, the ducks can't uh, be chosen uh, if they've only come in year 11 and 12. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I came in year 10, the last <laughs> term of year 10. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, eventually they did honor me and they did, but uh, we, we had a, um, a situation. We had joint duckses where he was acknowledged at the ducks of the school and I was given... Um a, a special uh, prize for hard working and best improver award.
0: I was happy for that anyway. That's beautiful, George. That's awesome. Yeah, so the desire, that's the that's the thing. This it's, it's underpinning that's, this whole message, George. It, the desire um is incredible. I just it's it's so clear that that's 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 one of your strongest strongest uh character character or, uh, traits, my friend
1: yeah the, the drive and the hard work the combination of those yeah. is hard to beat you know n- not everybody is is um as blessed as uh, you know everybody else like some people have got a higher iq and some people have a lower iq and you can improve that a little bit through hard work but if you've got hard work uh, and, and desire and pushing you you know it doesn't matter on your background it really doesn't matter uh you know what you grew up with where you grew up who your parents who your siblings are you can improve your situation not everybody can become a doctor or a lawyer or or a nasa uh, you know engineer but everybody no matter their background if they have that drive that desire and they put in the hard work they can change their life and they can improve their lot in life despite the bad cards that, that was dealt to them i had a pretty bad set of cards dealt to me but i had some good ones i had some lovely people like my mum and my siblings who loved me dearly i didn't see them very often but i always knew that i'm loved and i'm valued oh, and that that made a big difference and i also wanted to perform to prove to them that, that i'm worthy of their love that i'm worthy of the hard work that they've put in and in supporting me and and that makes a big difference
0: absolutely um George spiritually did you feel like did you feel like your dad was watching or did you feel like he was guiding you or, or, is 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 that something that ever crossed your mind during the during these times uh,
1: Look in the Middle East everybody is religious and there's not many people who don't proclaim to be religious I you know I grew up accepting Christianity as my religion without questioning it and I never really understood what it is to be a christian until university and and through the mid year uh, be, you know, between the second term and the third term of university i went to a conference called mid year conference and that one was first time that i really understood what it is to be a christian uh, and, and to to give up your you know your life for your faith and i'm not super religious but i certainly do believe uh, and and um, you know that has always been in the background of my life Uh, And then I met my wife, uh, Caroline, as you mentioned, and she really uh, helped me understand Australian culture. Even though I'd come to Australia two and a half years before I'd met her, I was working so hard day and night to learn a new language and and do well enough in the HSC. Uh, And and then the day after I finished the HSC, I started working. I never really met uh, people or, or got to know. I didn't have any friends in year 11 and 12. I was very... Very isolated. I was very fortunate to meet Caroline on the first day, first year union, we became friends. And she really helped me understand what what it is to me and you know to be an Aussie and you know to understand the Aussie spirit and grab the opportunities and learn a lot about Australia. And and we've spent the last thirty years together.
0: Wow. So just so all the listeners um, can understand, one of my favourite things to ask a couple is how they met who got who in the headlock, who was more in love with who, and how it all went down. And when I asked Carolyn that question, she told me a really funny story. I don't know if you fellas remember <laughs> it. But she said um, she was, I don't know where you guys met in particular, across paths, but she said, I saw um, this sharp-looking uh, Middle Eastern man. Everybody else was dressed in Australian clothes. And he rocked up in a sharp sharp suit, tie, and a briefcase, ready, ready for action. And he can re- she said he really stood out. This is true, George
1: It is true. I stood out <laughs> like a sore thumb, absolutely. But it only lasted one day, the day after I learned very quickly. You see, you've got you've got to put yourself in my background. I've never been I've never stepped foot on a university. The only university I'd seen is what's called the American University of Beirut. And in Lebanon, the American University of Beirut is like a very, very big institution, but it's surrounded by four-meter-high walls and, you, and, and guards, and you can't walk in there unless you're a student or a professor. And all of them are very, like, highly educated people. So we, we used to walk past it and see all these, you know, well-dressed people. Now, here I am, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to University of New South Wales. I'm around, I think of my childhood. So you've got to dress up, grab your little bag, and go to university. And I turn up at the university; I've never been to a university. So what the hell? Where am I? <laughs> Everybody's dressed in songs and slippers <laughs> and t-shirts and shorts. And here I am, looking like a total fool. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> dress with uh, success, George.
1: <laughs> well, n- dressed with ignorance is is more like it, my friend. But uh, yeah, the day after, I dressed down to a jeans and a t-shirt and. Uh, I think that's what caught Caroline's eye. Oh, yes. Everybody noticed me, but I was very quiet. And um, uh, for the first year and a half, Caroline and I were friends, but didn't go out. Interestingly, she used to give me a call to try and call me at home, and I'd refuse to pick up the phone because my English, English wasn't good enough to have a really good conversation on the phone. So I, I, I was sort of a bit hesitant and a bit scared. So she was discouraged. But... You know, kudos to her. She didn't get discouraged enough to give up on me, and thankfully, she didn't give up on me, and uh, invited me out a couple of times. And I said no, sorry, I'm busy. When I wasn't, because I was scared to go out, uh, you know, with a an Aussie girl, you know. So, but eventually, she wore me down and I said yes. And uh, that was about a year and a half later, after we were friends and uh, started going out, and never looked back. But mm-hmm. I, I always like to say. I was blind, but now I see. see? so that's how
0: it was uh, very good. with Caroline. That's very good, George. I love that. <coughs> I love that part of the story, mate. Um, so just quickly, the isolation during year 10, 11, and 12 that you felt, um, was it overwhelming? Or how did you manage that, George? Like, um, yeah. Look, it, it, um, it wasn't pleasant. But I was so focused. I didn't really
1: care. I had, you know, essentially no friends, but I had my immediate family or half of my immediate family around me. And I just knew what I'm in for. I just worked day and night. I used to we used to live about eight of us in a a two bedroom flat when we first arrived um, and it was very crowded. So essentially, I did a lot of my study in the public library. And I used to stay in the library until that moment they sort of shuffled me out at, at 9 or t- 9 p.m at night and I used to just go home after that go to sleep get up in the morning go to school straight from school to the library and study you know all the way till 9 p.m at night until I got kicked out again um you know sure I was isolated did I feel bad about it not really did I want to have fun of course I did but I was very focused on learning a second language and and doing well enough at school and um, you know that was my focus and I did that and and I started to relax after the year 12 uh, was finished and I'm I'm happy I did that so while it wasn't easy it wasn't as bad as you know growing up in a refugee camp where you're only Christian in a Muslim camp or or you're only Palestinian in a Lebanese school you know so compared to my Mm. childhood year 11 and 12 despite the isolation was a breeze
2: um, you could ask um, you know how you said you had um half of your family here in australia would you say that um uh when you when you're in those isolation periods that um you would go back and debrief with with half of your family and that you'd talk it out and
1: um look my family was supportive we we're not uh you know at that at that time we weren't the type of people to talk a lot uh you know do you need anything yes no that's it here it is get on with it type thing it wasn't um the, the culture we grew up in is not the uh you know analyze uh psychological support type culture you just get on with it and do what you can in the circumstances that you find yourself in so while they were supportive it was more uh, you know, what do you need to get through the next day? What physical things, what food do you need? What drinks do you need? Can I drop you here or drop you there? And that was it. So I didn't have anyone to confide in uh, too much. I didn't have somebody to support me emotionally. Um, and it probably has left a scar or two that I've never really addressed until, you know, And but that's, uh, you know, a tough upbringing in a war zone, you don't get a lot of chance to talk about your emotions. You just get on with it and survive. And that's how I carried on, um, you know, through year 11 and 12 and really only started talking openly about things when I got to university. Yep.
0: Wow. Survival. So that survival instinct, George, was still a big part of your life when you came uh, absolutely. to Australia. Absolutely, yes. Uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, what were the first few? What What were the things that really stood out for you when you came to Australia um, about about the culture? What 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 really struck you?
1: Um, what struck me about the culture, I I don't know what struck me too much. I mean, everything was strange to me. Yeah. Everything was unusual. To walk around a boy and a girl holding hands was unusual. Um, to you know, walk around with people scantily dressed, everything, you know, was unusual. To to, to go to a shopping center and and find six or seven different restaurants from six or seven different countries was unusual. In the Middle East, we grew up with, it was very unicultural. Everything was very, very basic. The shops in, in the Middle East would have one brand of rice, one brand of, Cereal, one brand of this. In here, you go to the shop and you're blown away with the variety. Like everything was a culture shock. Everything, mm. and there, I couldn't nominate one particular thing. But you know, uh, I suppose uh, going to the beaches and and uh, seeing ladies with poppers uh, <laughs> and no bikinis was a bit of a shock. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the openness and so on is something that I'm not used to. In the, you know. Uh, Everything was new. Everything was different.
0: Speaking, but no, nothing
1: in particular stood out.
0: Speaking of culture, George, just when can you remember when you had your first beer?
1: Oh, uh, university. Yeah, first year uni, mate. We went down to the uni bar <laughs> and uh, I tasted my first beer. And I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest. But uh, you, you had to drink to, to fit in. So I did drink throughout university and... People knew that i that really enjoy it. So I was essentially the designated driver. I'd share a drink and stop what everybody else boozed up. And so whenever anybody needed to go anywhere, I was always a designated driver. I I have given up the drinks after university. So now I might just have a glass of wine once every month or two. So I'm not much of a drinker. and not even, you know, no beer and, and so on. The only drink I enjoy It's something that I grew up with, which is a bit like ooza or called Arak. Um, Wow. It smells and and tastes like aniseed, but very, very strong. I might just have that, (laughs) again, once a month or two, so I'm not much of a drinker.
0: Arak is very popular in Sri Lanka too, George, believe it or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. The whole Middle East, India, Sri Lanka, you know, very similar if you go to to Turkey, to Greece, uh, you know, Eastern Europe. They all have similar type of uh, extraction, but very, very strong.
0: Excellent. Uh, What I was going to say, George, so would you say um, clearly you were driven, you had the survival mindset, you had the desire to be better. Was this a time when you say you would, when you were younger, you set goals for yourself? Was there somewhere you were going where you wanted to be? Were you aware of that at that sort of year 10, 11, 12?
1: Um, The the goals was survival. That was the main goal that I had as I grew up. Until 1982. 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon and surrounded us in Beirut. I was uh, at the time visiting my parents in the equivalent of summer holidays, I suppose. And Israel invaded Lebanon and surrounded Beirut for 88 days. So that was the longest period of time that I was in, in Beirut for 88 days under Israeli um i suppose bombardment and they surrounded uh, so, so we couldn't leave or we could, nobody would go in and so on so in, in order to uh i suppose suppose survive i volunteered for uh the equivalent of st john's ambulance i suppose you might call first aid uh, people yeah. so in, in the war i volunteered to assist in the ambulance hand as an ambulance hand of course i had no education on on what to do so the only thing we could do is just sort of help the embers by, you know, going with them, opening the door for them, carrying the, you know, the wounded. And that opened up my, uh, I suppose, eyes to the need uh, to really understand the human body and, and the, the desire to assist people who are injured and, and uh, helpless and uh, bleeding. So it implanted a, a desire in me to uh, possibly be a doctor. I never really thought I would make it until I came to Australia. And then the, the dream was, all, oh, well, maybe I can. You know, I started year 11 and my, my mark started to improve from the failure in year 10 to pass the beginning of year 11 to being the top of you know, class by the middle of year 11 and 12 until I moved up to, you know, to year uh, 12 and started doing year three and four unit masks. And of course, um the desire to you know learn was you know quite strong, so eventually i I got enough marks to get into medicine, and uh that's uh the rest is history, as they say
0: yeah, fantastic, and just for the listeners um George's wife Carolyn, the lovely Carolyn's also a doctor, which is um yeah, I think it's incredible um so I forgot to ask George. <laughs> And uh, 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 you might have covered it. How, what was the exact situation for you to get here? How did that happen?
1: Uh, how to uh, came to Australia We applied on multiple occasions on a humanitarian visa and this, you know we just didn't have they had a point system I suppose and uh, we didn't get enough of it. but eventually um, my uh, sister came to visit uh, Australia. And while she was here, she was snapped up by another Palestinian refugee who was an Australian national. So she stayed as his wife, and she became an Australian citizen. And then they sponsored us on, a, I suppose, a humanitarian visa. And when, when we first came for the, th- the first three months, we stayed with them. So, you know, my brother-in-law had, uh, you know, uh, put in some assurance, I can't really remember the details to be to be quite honest, yep. that he will assist us with housing, this, that and the other. And sure enough, he did uh, and, and helped us with everything from the very beginning. Like I said, him and his extended family and the Palestinian community in Sydney helped us in the first three months as we lived with them until we got our own two bedroom unit. And uh, that's how we came to Australia, thankfully to my sister who came to visit and got married.
0: Amazing. George, how would you describe the um, the Palestinian spirit?
1: Well, Palestinians are like every other nationality you've got from you know the the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, you know, it's a uh, you know a very hard community. Uh, more than seventy percent of the Palestinians were made refugees in nineteen forty eight. Uh, so they were displaced from their home. Not one of them was allowed to go back. Uh, if if you've got a minute uh, to look up Hatum family reunion, the Jordanian TV ran a small story mm. about my extended family. When my father was very, very young, he was kicked out of Palestine in 1948 with my grandfather. And my father died having never seen his two sisters who were older than him and were left behind in, in Palestine, which later became Israel. And, you know, because he was not allowed to vi- not, not even visit his home. Palestinians have got a lot of hard life yeah. and, you know, they're generally tough, hard-working people, but like every other community, you got those that grab the opportunity with both hands and run with it. And then others, you know, don't have the drive and the desire and, you know, they survive from day to day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Have you been back, George, to, to Israel or the refugee camp or Palestinian? Or?
1: Yeah, um, I certainly have. In the in, um, fifth year medical school, we get what's called an elective. Uh, an elective you can basically do for two months any subject uh related to medicine anywhere you like at all so i had a bit of an open mind and i chose to go and do one month in palestine and one month in israel because i wanted to see what the other side is like mm. so again um, you know i went and i, I did that and it was, it was my first trip back uh, since i came to australia so it was about eight eight years after i came to australia and um i made history as the first ever medical student to fail an elective because you can't really find it, because you, you, you just do whatever you want and just, you know, attend. You don't have to sit an exam. You just attend to whatever clinic you want to go to and, and observe. And then, you know, they give you a tick. Th- yes, you attended. But when I did a month in Palestine and a month in Israel, the Israeli professor... Um, didn't like me because I'd argued politics with him. So he'd given me a bad report. So I had to, I had to repeat my elective when I came back to Australia. And I can tell you a whole story about that another day. Okay.
0: <laughs> what was it like
1: going back? Look, it was very emotional. Um, obviously, I was in a, in a refugee camp growing up till I was 15. And I was the first person in my extended family... To be able to go back to Palestine and Israel, because I'm an Aussie now, I'm an Aussie, I had a passport, I had rights. I went back and, and I visited my grandfather's house. It broke my heart. Um, mm-hmm. My extended cousins, who were left behind uh, in in 1948, still knew all the lands that my grandfather, who you know was very well off, you know, had the houses that you know my extended family had. And, and, you know, we, we went and saw um, people from Eastern Europe living in my grandfather's house. It just broke my heart. It broke my heart. But you can't do anything about it, so you just get on with life. And I suppose that visit really um, instilled in the injustice of, of this creation of the state of Israel and the creation of the Palestinian refugees that have never been able to go back. So ever since then, I've done my best you know, in in, in the modest uh, things that I can to assist other Palestinian refugees and generally refugees in general. So my wife and I also, uh, as people from indigenous culture that were basically kicked out of their country and and became refugees, have a heart for the Aboriginal community. So we're planning in about a year's time after uh, we finish our contract with the current job that, Caroline has and the work that I've got, we're going to go and work with, you know, assisting Aboriginal communities in need and and that's one way that I can give back to this lovely country that's given me and help people who are unfortunate uh, like I was when I was little.
0: Incredible attitude, George, it's just magic, mate. Yeah, beautiful, mate, it's really, really special. Um, So, Carolyn, she's a year and a half, she stuck it out and she put up with you not answering the phone and hiding and playing hide and seek, George. She wore you down and then um, how long did it take for you and who proposed and how did that all happen?
1: Yeah, we started going out about halfway through year two of medical school. And then um, we, we knew we belonged to each other soon after that and we were... You know very close and we did all our studies together and our terms together and so on towards the end of year three i was almost going to give up medicine i was going to go into politics because of i was just learning about the injustice to, to the palestinian refugees and and i was really involved in politics uh, on a student university level but again Caroline came to the rescue and, and told me i can help them more if i finish my medical degree rather than going into politics so I said, okay, I'll stick it out. And if I want to go into politics, I'll do that after I become a doctor. So surely enough, I did that. Um, and, and basically, we got engaged and we got married the first year after uh, we graduated. We were both interns on very modest income. And um, we bought our first house in the outer western suburbs of Yaguna, just further out than Bankstown in Sydney, for those that know Sydney. A good old fibro house, and we lived in it for seven years. Had our, you know, kids, our first three kids in there, and then we moved to a, a different area, and you know, stayed there for seven years. And now we moved to Strathfield, which is one of the, well, I suppose, nicer, nicer suburbs. Uh, you know, much more expensive real estate, and again, all thanks to Caroline.
0: What was it about Caroline, George? What was it that, that was that she was able to influence you the right way and? What was it about her? Because it would have been, look, mum's <clears throat> Sri Lankan, dad's Australian, and um, you know, it's not that it was frowned upon, but it just it wasn't as normal as it is now. Like, what was it about her, George, that that made you have this knowing sense that she was the one, and and yeah?
1: Well, she she had a heart of gold, and she was very soft, and and <clears throat> you know, being from the Middle East, somebody who's white, sort of white skinned uh you know and and blue eyes and blonde hair whoa you know i was blown away by that uh you know to how she sees people with olive skin and you know suntan as as beautiful but you know the beauty is in the eyes of the beholder and people from the middle east have always looked to the west as the the you know uh that's that's the beautiful hollywood uh, type uh you know yeah Uh, You know, if you're white you're good if you're black you're bad that sort of thing So we grew up with white being the ideal, you know So I suppose I was swept away by her personality her her generous spirit um, and and you know her Magnificent Christian ethics and her love, you know, she's very very loving person Uh, And Like I said, I was blind for the first year year and a half and now I see and I'm glad I still see (laughs) She's, She's a beautiful woman
0: yeah, um, what, about, what about some tips, George, for all... Uh, how do I say this? As a counsellor, we see the, the destruction that parents splitting up have um, on kids growing up. Uh, me and Simi are lucky enough to still be married. Mum and Dad are still married, and you're married to Carolyn for over 30 years. What's the tip in staying married, George?
1: Mate, if there's one thing... You've got to put the other person first. That's it. Mm. Now, you know, there's more often than not, you know, she prefers, let's say, this movie or I prefer a different type of movie. Well, of course, different. we're different people. Yeah. We grew up differently, different culture, different likes, different. Um, I'm, I'm the sporty type person. She's the bookworm type person. But I've always um, put her first, no matter what and my answer would always be whatever you prefer darling you know <laughs> and, and you know and, and it's not it's not a cliche yeah. it's it's the recipe for happiness mm. if you are putting your desires ahead of your partner's desires it's a recipe for conflict and and disaster yeah. if you're putting your partner's desires ahead of yours and they are doing the same it is often mm. uh, you know we'll find a nice compromise it can never be one way, yep. but if both parties focus on putting the desires of their partner ahead of their own selfish desires more often than not, then things will work out. Always, always, whatever you like, darling. <laughs>
0: yes, very good advice. A happy wife, happy life there. Very good. How many kids, George, yeah. did you end up with, you and Carolyn?
1: Yeah, we've got four kids, three of them are at university, uh, and one is in the uh, year 11, so next year we'll finish year 12. So two kids followed in our footsteps, started doing medicine. One didn't enjoy it, so switched to doing psychology, finished that, and done master's of psychology, and now are doing a PhD in psychology. Phenomenal. The yeah. second young lady is uh, in her second final year of medical school, and she's loving that. The third, who's a boy, he's studying law, uh, and he's enjoying that. He's done three years. And the young little rascal, uh, my little Sammy, he's is uh, in year 11. And we're looking forward to him year- finishing year 12. Like, as I mentioned, when we finish that next year, we're planning to move to the country and, and work in Aboriginal communities. And what's holding us here is his schooling. And once he's finished, hopefully we'll be able to uh, give a bit more to Australia by volunteering and, and working with Aboriginal communities.
0: Oh well, wow. um, what has Sammy shown interest in? He probably wants to be a motocross rider or a downhill speed. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think he's going to probably follow his brother uh, in terms of law and commerce or law and economics, uh, business type things. His brother's doing a double degree in uh, economics and law, yep. and he's done the first three years. So I think he's going to go in in that. In that sort of but you know who knows who knows it's a bit early yep um you know when they finish year 12 as long as they do well the world is their oyster i mean this country you can do anything you want if you work hard for it
0: that's that
2: is the truth i love hearing that i love i've got a question um you know um with you and your wife and a mixed marriage so um what sort of um was it half and half you use a bit of your culture and the australian culture to to bring up your family or was it um all one-sided yeah
1: look um no no it's always it's always a compromise it's always a compromise i might add it it, you know it 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 was more hard for my family to accept caroline than Mm. for caroline's family to accept me the the you know the discrimination was more the other way people think oh yeah you know the the, the ethnics are discriminated against or, you know, yep. but it, it was the other way around. My family found it a lot more hard for me to marry in Aussie yep. because they didn't really understand the Australian culture. And then, you know, they didn't really give her, uh, Caroline an opportunity to get to know her and so on. So they resisted Caroline coming into our family a lot more than Caroline ex- you know, and her family accepting me into their family. So it was a lot more easy to start with to go towards the aussie culture
2: yeah
1: because i was more accepted than caroline was accepted into my family yeah. but as my family got to know her and, and how a wonderful person and a wonderful human being they worship the ground she walks on now <laughs> then my wife became uh you know started to learn a lot more about my culture and she's learned arabic and still not perfectly uh, you know a can't speak it perfectly but she understands a lot uh, of the language and the culture and, and, you know, so we're a bit half-half, but, you know, living in Australia, you just uh, adapt to the Australian way of life. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a lot more easy for me to adapt to the Australian way of life than for her to adapt to a Palestinian culture, which is quite foreign in this in this land, but we do have a little bit of both.
2: Yeah, I think that's similar to to my, my marriage with my wife, because uh, my wife had a hard time fitting into my Samoan culture and she wasn't yeah. accepted so she was always ousted uh was until later on she same similar similar to Caroline. yeah she was accepted and um yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing isn't yeah, each it each family is different isn't yeah, it yeah it is yeah amazing
0: um so George do you consider yourself a success
1: do I consider oh, well I've had lots of success and a little bit of failures here and there I've had uh you know difficulties all along my you know my life uh you know uh, i've had issues as a doctor that uh, have caused me you know great uh heartaches and and uh, i had to take time off from being a doctor so there's always life is never smooth sailing Mm. and anyone that expects everything to go you know smoothly or go well every time is not living in real life. It doesn't happen that way. There is no such thing as smooth sailing. There's always storms. There's always uh, headaches. There's always heartaches. There's always relationship bust-ups. You know, I've had good friends that, you know, moved away from me, and and, and I still don't understand why one of my best friends doesn't talk to me till today, despite me reaching out. You know, something happened to him, and he didn't want to, you know, be my friend i don't understand so you always have these sort of difficulties but you've got to look at the big picture and you've got to say look i am immensely lucky i'm immensely blessed i look at all the good things and put them ahead of the bad things that have happened to me and i focus on those i have i have a very simple philosophy the most important thing in life is the relationships so your relationship with your immediate family, your partner, and so on, is the bedrock of your happiness. You can't base your relationship on your image on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. <laughs> the happiness there doesn't come from that. that that's only heartache. Yeah. You can't base your, your happiness on, on your success in your career or your dollars or, or your properties or your portfolio in the Shem. That's not where your happiness comes from. Yeah. Many rich people die a miserable, lonely life happiness and success comes from relationships and it could be your relationship with your maker if you're that way inclined your relationship with yourself you've got to be happy with yourself you've got to have that you know solid uh, love of yourself and happy with yourself and content with what you've got and contentment is is, is, is your recipe and secret of success and then your re- relationship with your immediate family and then relationship with your extended family and relationship with your local community and then your relationship with your with your extended, uh, you know, and, and with the environment that you live in. Yeah. And the smaller the circle, the closer it is to yourself, the more important that relationship. And that is the secret to keeping you happy, is by making sure those relationships are nurtured. Spend time on building those relationships rather than building up material things which only you know it might give you some happiness temporarily you know I still drive a small Toyota Corolla <laughs> I could I I, I, I could and I've, I've driven a Toyota Corolla since I was an intern that's when I first bought a car let
0: is it the same um, one George no
1: well not quite mate. I I, I <laughs> upgrade every about seven years I buy one which is about one year old I don't like buying brand new cars I buy one which is about one year old and save myself 20 or 30 percent I'm going to get to about seven years I sell it. And the reason I do that is because I'm not very mechanically minded. I don't know. I don't understand engines and I can't repair On I just wait, you know, until about seven years old, sell it and upgrade it because I don't want no headaches. I've got no time to fix and this that, and the other. So, but I have no desire whatsoever to drive a luxury car and so on. I'd much rather invest my time and money. In uh, building up people around me and building up relationships, than rather than material things.
0: Mm, that's why he's so special, George. Um, it it's funny you say that, George. With su- success, people that I've met along my journey that I've perceived as successful, I've always taken the time to ask them one question: What's the key to success? And every one of them said relationships. Every single person. So that's uh, that's that's very interesting that you also share in that philosophy. So, George, when the big hits came and people dropped off, that's what we call it when friends stop talking to you and for no reason or whatever perceived reason they have. And then, you know, you said bits and pieces happen with, with um, being a doctor and that. After everything you've been through, is it, was it, is it a situation where you go, hang on, I've been through a hell of a lot harder than this. I'm, I'm going to be fine? Or is that, is that what you draw on, George?
1: Yeah, I draw on that, and I draw on on the relationships that I have. So when something bad happens, I spend time talking to my wife, to my siblings, to my close friends, to my extended family, and we focus on the good things. And, and, you know, because we share similar philosophies in life, we just put, you know, the, the difficult things to one side. You can't ignore them. You can't forget about them. You just put them to one side say, look, okay, I've got to deal with this, but that is not you know, the main thing in my life. The main thing in my life is my relationship with my wife and me assisting my four kids to grow up into decent human beings. And I'll, I'll you know, whatever I can to do that. And when there are difficulties, and as a doctor, let's say you get sued and, and you just deal with that. Firstly, you, you you get very angry that there are difficulties. Why? I'm, I'm doing my best here. And But then you say, look, it doesn't matter. What matters is... The important things in, in my life I'm not broken. They are good, and I continue to work on them and improve them, and that's where my satisfaction in life comes from.
0: Oh, excellent, George. Um, Yeah, fantastic, mate. So a doctor through the pandemic, and I, I don't usually bring the pandemic up because, um, yeah, but what was it like to be a doctor, both yourself and Carolyn, through that period?
1: Yeah, look, it's tough um like everybody you know dealing with masks and you know dealing with uh, the uncertainty especially in the first six months when we had no idea how it was transmitted and we were worried about even shopping bags and pizza boxes and you know you had to sanitize everything and put gloves on when you go outside and it was just uh, you know a horrible experience really but as we understood the virus a little bit better and uh, you know you start to you know, look at the positive side of things. So one of the great things that happened through the pandemic is I managed to go for a walk with my wife every day, pretty much throughout the lockdowns. I mean, you guys are in, you know, in Melbourne had a lot more lockdown than anywhere else in the world, certainly more than Sydney and a hell of a lot more than, say, Brisbane and so on. But, you know, we just took the the negative, which is the lockdown, and turned it into a positive by saying, look, we're going to go for a walk at least once a day
2: yeah.
1: uh, for half an hour or one hour. Uh, and and, and, and we, we absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. And we explored our local environment. We had a five kilometer, five kilometer zone that we can't go in. And we discovered some amazing walks. Yeah. within these five kilometer <laughs> a radius from around our house. We tried to push the five kilometer a little bit so we could do a little <laughs> bit more, as most of us did. Yeah. And, and we were very pleased when they extended it 10 kilometers and we explored every walk and every nook and cranny of our local environment. And that was also a positive thing. So you take a positive out of a negative situation.
0: We did exactly the same thing, George. It's it's that's really cool. Me and Danny used to go for f- and. Five K walk to the five K perimeter and he'd yeah. buy himself a big Mac on a on a healthy walk. <laughs> um on that go. on that, George, um how do you feel about vegans and what's your attitude towards vegans and um plant based a uh, plant based diet?
1: Oh uh, look you know, I each to his own. I'm not a vegan. I try and, uh, I always have at least three or four veggies every day and I love my fruit and my, you know, my veggies. Um, I think, you know, as long as you're not um, treating the animals cruelly, uh, I don't have a problem with having chicken. Uh, I eat mainly chicken and, and uh, fruit and veggies. I think red meat is pretty taxing on the environment. Um, So, you know, while we do eat it, uh, you know, I don't have a philosophical view either for or against any particular diet. As a doctor, we advise red meat only once a week, yeah. um, and and to be primarily, you know, uh, fruit and veggies and 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 you know lentils and these sort of things. You can get plenty of iron from uh, legumes. Um, yeah, but in general, I I don't have uh, a strong view either way.
0: Okay. And uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, George, is um, from a doctor's perspective, drugs and alcohol, do you see that increasing? Do you see it decreasing? Do you see it as a big problem? How how do you view drugs and alcohol in Australia?
1: Okay, well it's definitely a very, very big problem. Um, If we don't um, restrict it to drugs and alcohol, I'd say any addiction is absolutely devastating. So, you know, some addictions are more devastating personally and some addictions are more devastating to the extended and immediate family. So somebody who's addicted to porn is pretty bad, but, you know, the harm is primarily to themselves unless they become violent or, or try and live it out with their partners and that's quite harmful for their relationships. Somebody who's addicted to marijuana, they might just have a a, you know, a couple of joints and, you know, uh, unlikely for them to hurt other people. I'm not su- suggesting that's a good addiction. That's a very bad addiction. But you know, if or somebody's addicted to gambling, that can be quite yeah. uh, devastating to the immediate and extended family because they tend to, you know, break their relationships and try and get money from here, there, and everywhere. Once you start um, addictions that affect your behavior, such as drugs and alcohol, then It's a recipe for broken relationships and that um, becomes very, very destructive to the human being, both yourself and those uh, uh, around you. So, you know, just stay away from addictions. If it's something that you enjoy, you might want to be very, very careful not to overdo it. Otherwise, you become dependent on it and addicted to it and your happiness might be perceived that. If I have the next shot that I'd be happy, but in reality, uh, very, very few addicts, regardless of what addiction, are happy. They usually have a miserable life.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very fair, George. Um, I just, as we sort of wrap up, um, I just wanted to be really clear. um, When we met each other, George, me, um, all of our tribe, and... The young um, fellas we were with, um, we took Carolyn and George to a, a really special spot, a little oasis in the middle of nowhere, and they were cool enough to come along with us. We'd only just met and shared some abalone, and um, funnily enough, at that oasis, one of the guys decided, we had died, decided to jump in the water with his shoes on and needed to be rescued. So apart from that disaster, it was a pretty good time, and we parted ways, and... Um, George, uh, my wife rang me and said, Who are these George and Carolyn people? And I said, We're we're in the middle of nowhere. I'm thinking, How how do you know about them? Where have you got cameras out here? And she said, No, they've just donated um, a large amount of money to the Hard Cuddles organization. And I just wanted to thank you, George, and I just wanted to let all the listeners know that's the quality of people um, we're talking to today. Um, so thank you and your wife and thank and thank you so much for keeping in contact with us George I knew our story wasn't over and i I, I just I'm just so appreciative that you're able to come on on the show and 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 share this because um, there are so many takeaways for myself so I hope the listeners very much feel the same way. so thanks heaps George.
1: No thank you for um, uh, you know taking us under your wings when we met accidentally in in, in a lovely location uh by the beach and thank you for uh, taking us for that smoking ceremony that uh, we were privileged to witness uh, yeah. thank you for taking us to that Heidi hole and an absolutely <laughs> magnificent waterfall and, and a a swimming uh, hole uh, it was one of the highlights of our trip um i, I offered previously that you are starting a a prisons ministry where uh, you would assist. And I I stand by that. I'm still ready, willing, and able to assist where I can. I'd love to be involved. And I thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. And I do hope people, uh, you know, listen to my story, are inspired by the fact that, yes, uh, you can overcome difficulties. And, yes, you can make the most of any bad situation and with With persistence, hard work, and dedication, you can improve your life no matter what your lot is at the
0: moment. I love it. I love it, George. Um, What's the, I guess, the last thing that we ask all our guests, all three now that have come on the show, um, what's one quote, line, or bit of philosophy that you've lived your whole life by?
1: I'll, I'll say it's, it's an Arabic saying which is crudely translated and I hope you get the meaning of it. Say it
0: in both basically, Arabic and, and it's, uh, English.
1: In Arabic we say لَا تَكْرَهُ لَعَلَّهُ خَيْرًا Lakum <laughs> which basically means do not hate anything that happens to you because it might be for the best. So in, in every situation look at the silver That's lining awesome. and, and wish, uh, you know, take the good out of whatever situation that you're in, build on it, and do not hate it because it might lead you in a path that might open up new doors for you and you might make the most of
0: that situation
2: beautiful george
0: boys how good was that
2: that was awesome thank you so much george thanks
0: lovely to have a chat
1: loved it myself thank you for the opportunity and i'll see you around